You're listening to the Bahai World News Service. Now live During a recent gathering at the Bahai World Center on the development of communities, Matt Weinberg, a technologist from the United States, sat with the news service to discuss ideas presented in his article on technology and society. So the paper that I'm going to refer to is called Technology, Values, and the Shaping of Social Reality. The primary thesis of the paper is that what faces us as individuals, communities, and societies is the ability to develop our capacity to make appropriate choices about technology in a proactive way, in a constructive way, rather than being passive onlookers. My name is Matt Weinberg. I am a, a technologist by training, but I've been on a career arc over many decades that has involved actually working as a technologist and then moving to look at the implications of technology for society at a, at a government or secular level, and then realizing that the ultimate expression of technology and uh, practical knowledge that truly benefits humankind can only be carried out if we understand that we are, shall we say, more than material beings, that we actually are beings of dignity, of nobility, that have some sort of spiritual basis. So one way to think about how technology at this moment in history is affecting the human condition and human society and shaping human society is maybe to ask this question. How can we live in a coherent and balanced way in a social reality that is increasingly being dominated and shaped by technology? So maybe a good place to start is really to understand and describe what technology is. And if we look back at history, it's very, very clear that technological change is an inherent part of material progress. And what technology is and what it does is that it amplifies or magnifies human intent and capacity. And in so doing, it alters the environment in which we act. So you can argue that technology and society in some sense actually co-evolve or are co-constructed. They're intimately linked. And we can see this in terms of some of the major revolutions that have occurred in history, the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, and today the information revolution. But one example, maybe to make this more concrete and to understand how scientific and technological change actually affects not only the functioning of society, but even the conception of society, is maybe to go back about 500 years to the time, I think it was 1450 or so, where a gentleman named Gutenberg came up with a number of components to a system that was called the printing press. And the printing press was really an instrument of mass communication up to that point, the flow of knowledge was in the hands of elites. But through this innovation, and it wasn't just one thing, it was movable type, it was oil-based ink, it was the molds that he developed so that he could quickly develop type, so he could mass produce books fairly quickly. 
All of these things constituted a system that basically unleashed human potential. It changed how knowledge and content was shared and generated. It actually resulted in increases in literacy, unleashed um, all sorts of potential in terms of the middle classes and business and commerce. So in a matter of two generations, almost the, the printing press had spread all across Europe and millions of pages of new content actually became available to the people of Europe. In essence, you didn't have Europe plus the printing press. You had a transformed Europe because of the printing press. You could argue and sort of understand it this way, that the printing press changed the social ecology of European society at that time. And this is what technology does. It operates within a social ecology. And this is why technical developments often have consequences, social, environmental, behavioral, that go way beyond the immediate purposes and design of the devices and systems themselves. And for this reason, technology is not neutral. <laughs> it has its very introduction into any sort of context, any sort of use by individuals, by groups, by communities, it changes the nature of that reality. So what we can glean from this is that what technology does, it is something that we create, but in creating it, it also results in us recreating and redefining ourselves. So for this reason, we have to be very, very careful that when we develop technology and deploy it, that we understand the intention behind it, the values that are inherent to it, and that in particular, that whatever device or system that it expresses our values. And this is not an easy thing because oftentimes devices and systems are embedded with intention and values by in ways that we can't see, we're not aware of it. So one simple example is say a social media platform is designed by a company. <laughs> it has particular uh, intent. Um, it's designed to do certain things. Th those of us who are users want to use it in a particular way, but basically how we use it is constrained by the design and what it's asking us to do and, um, and, um, and how we um, interact with it. So the, the question then is how do we um, ensure that our values, um, our aspirations, our needs are actually incorporated into the design development and ultimate use of technology? It's not an easy thing because often we can't be sure about how something will actually be adopted and used. And so there are many examples throughout history of technologies being introduced and then being used in a completely different way than the designers intended. The telephone is an example. So it was originally conceived as a business to business tool and it started being used for idle chatter, right? <laughs> Informal conversation. And that became actually one of the dominant uses of it. So it actually, and ended up being something that the designers did not want. And then the company behind it didn't want it. <laughs> and so for this reason, all we can do is, um, you know, in, in order to ensure that we have a more purposeful and conscious deployment of technology is to be aware um, and to be in a, a stance of constantly looking and thinking and evaluating what technology does. Now, this is really hard. Most of us all know the experience of how we've sort of adapted our lives to these mobile devices. I myself maybe get up early in the morning. First thing I do is look at the phone. 
is it really necessary for me to do that as opposed to maybe getting up and and meditating a little bit before I look at the phone. So this is an example of sort of unthinking adaptation to a device. And oftentimes we, we use apps that outsource particular functions and we don't think that it has any implications, but actually to make any sort of decision to outsource some aspect of your life to, a, to an app or an algorithm is actually, you know, has implications. So, the other aspect of technology that maybe it's an overriding value that maybe sometimes we don't appreciate how it can actually overtake what we want a device or a system to do. And that is the value of efficiency. And of course, efficiency is a good thing. It allows us to scale. I mean, the printing press was an example of that. So one example that I would share, and I've noticed this in, both in work environments and also in, in community settings, the way we communicate now with each other is often very in a succinct way through text messaging or emails, and it is efficient. I think when you, for example, would use uh, a, a, a modern communication uh, method like texting or, or, or email, you're going to miss that and you're going to lose that connection. So this is the point that we, if we aren't fully aware uh, of the implications of our choices, we can end up in a situation where we let technology drive our behavior in, in a way that is not the direction we want to go, that it doesn't enhance our capability or our intentions in, in light of our values and our needs, but it just becomes an end in itself without us realizing that this is the case. A second and maybe more um, important value is what I would call an emphasis on instrumental rationality. There was one writer, uh, Marcuse, who basically says that, you know, we, the ultimate expression of an instrumental rationality is that we ourselves become extensions of technology. And this is precisely what's happened sort of with the internet, where we ourselves become the product, right? And both the consumer and the product, and we've become instrumentalized. So how do we avoid this? What does it mean? Um, well, we need to move from an instrumental rationality to a, a more expanded notion of rationality that encompasses both the mind, both the capacities of reason, but also the capacities and powers of the human spirit. In the Baha'i faith, this idea is expressed most directly as the idea of the harmony between scientific and religious knowledge, that there are in fact two principal knowledge systems that are complementary, that work together the challenge before us you know, is to think about it's not just methodology that we need, nor is it just values. It's methodology and values together. This is the new rationality that we need in practice. The way that most technologies are developed, it's all about methodology. <laughs> and the values sometimes are, again, often they're embedded or they're not considered the values of a community or a group of people are just not taken into account. Here is, uh, here's some examples. So uh, one is, say, ultrasound, a very powerful, useful medical tool. It's also used for other types of applications, but it's been misused and distorted in, in quite horrible ways, actually. In some cases, yeah, the, the, you know, the, for the use of gender selection. So what, did, what does the ultrasound tech technology do? Is it neutral? Well, because it was introduced into a certain social and political context and applied in a particular way that was quite objectionable, 
it changed the moral terrain of decision-making. The types of knowledge that we need then in advancing is of multiple types. We need not only methodologies and theories and techniques um, and models, but we also need intuition and values and what Baha'is uh, would call spiritual perception or insight that um, uh, flows from our understanding that we are in fact spiritual beings, that we're not simply here by accident, that we have a purpose in contributing to building ways of living that are just and peaceful. And so that the technologies that we wanna develop and the forms of knowledge that would allow us to build those technologies have to be multidimensional. And, and it's very simple, we can just say it, Scientific methodology by itself cannot tell us what is the best way to live. We need other sources of knowledge to tell us that. Baha'u'llah says that arts, crafts, and sciences uplift the world of being. In other words, to pursue this is actually an expression of who we are as spiritual beings, but we must do so in a way that aligns with that spiritual purpose, with those spiritual values and those spiritual goals. There is, in the writings of Baha'u'llah, the concept of human betterment, of, of an ever-advancing civilization that continually fosters material and spiritual well-being. And in so doing, that there is a central role for knowledge of all types, but particularly, um, Baha'u'llah makes reference to what can be called scientific knowledge or practical knowledge and technology. And what this implies is that in trying to build a better world and trying to advance civilization, it implies that there's a capacity that we have to develop as individuals, as communities, and as uh, uh, institutions that involves learning to make appropriate choices about technology. So the, the central thing, I think, is that we have to understand that technological decision-making is everyone's responsibility. It's not something that we allocate to only a, a, a certain group of people who have certain skills, capacities. Everybody is affected by technology. Let's give an example. So say in a village, um, there's an overall goal of uh, improving public health. Uh, one of the first steps, of course, one might take in a situation like that is to ensure that there's clean water. And so how do you come up with a source of clean water? Well, there's many different approaches. If someone from the outside, if an entity or an organization comes in from the outside and comes in with a very sophisticated solution, an irrigation system or yeah, something like that, pumping water from underground, usually that system, because it didn't come from the people themselves, those were the users, it basically breaks down and its introduction to that community turns out to be a failure. So, but there are other ways to do this, right? So there are, in fact, all sorts of impressive indigenous technologies or simple, we might call appropriate technologies where community members can actually learn how to apply methods of storing water and distributing water that they have complete control over in terms of the system, its design, its maintenance. And so it's a much more viable approach. So you have to create mechanisms of learning about technology where Technology is not only being absorbed from the outside, but in fact, it's primarily being generated from within. So once uh, a process of knowledge generation occurs in a community, then a community is very well positioned 
to develop and deploy technologies, to evaluate their impacts, to make a, a adjustments to the, the systems that they develop. But because they are the protagonists, because they're taking an active stance in relation to these tools and, and systems, it's sustainable, it's viable, it lasts. It's not something that's imposed from the outside. One of the things that is quite interesting is that the efficacy or sort of you would say the optimal solution, the deployment of a technology usually has many possible um, levels. So if you were to look, say, at the issue of transportation, to get from A to B, um, it's very clear where there is a dense population that it's not to have that everybody in that dense population who live in a particular geographic area has their own personal transport. That's actually the most inefficient solution, regardless of whether it is an internal combustion engine or an electric vehicle or something. The reason is, is that the most optimal solution is a mass transit solution. But uh, the way that in many societies in the world today operate is that our choice of technologies and products and services is through a market system. And the incentives of that market system are to create these products and goods that say cater to the individual, as opposed to providing a systemic solution. A systemic solution requires political will, where a community or a society decides, okay, we're going to pay taxes and those taxes are gonna be used to build systems of mass transit, right? It's a different allocation of resources. It's more of a social, sociological, political, sort of aspect of how technology is used and deployed rather than sort of individuals making choices. Several thinkers about technology have made this observation that disseminating technology is easy, but putting it to good use, nurturing good use and building institutions that are effective and deploying technology in an optimal way, this is the primary challenge. Again, when we have very serious political challenges or social challenges, we go to the technical solution because it seems like it's an easier way out. And I think this is what we uh, need to get out of. And, and what we end up doing, again, is not extending capability that is consistent with our needs and our, and our values. We succumb to something that appears to be efficient or appears to offer a solution, but it really may be over the long term making the situation worse. So the, the question then really is, what is the primary pathway to ensure that we are building capacity and learning how to make appropriate choices? What do we have to do? We really have to create mechanisms of reflection, spaces of evaluation, um, which usually involves dialogue between the relevant parties. So I will start with, um, say, the family. And so like in my family in recent years, there's an ongoing discussion about screen time. <laughs> and that's a consultation because if you're always on your devices, then you're not doing other things. You're not meeting your own goals or it may be distorting the goals that you care about and you're not realizing it. It was very difficult during the pandemic because our, our lives actually in many parts of the world were completely tied um, to screens. So that's an example of, you know, in a family, we had to have a space to reflect on like, what is the, what are we doing here? How are we interacting with each other? How are we achieving our goals as a family given that? Then if you go say to a, a community level, um, okay, maybe that we 
um, we need to adopt some sort of new environmental approach or a, let's say, a, another system of water. So how do we go about um, arriving at an optimal solution? Well, you can't rely on just, again, certain people who have technical skills who actually maybe are not familiar with what it's like to live where you live. You actually have to involve all of the, the stakeholders in, in that community to really think through what might be the implications of a particular technology pathway. So it is precisely the mechanisms of what we would call consultation, and knowledge generation, sometimes we don't know the answers. And so we have to do some research. We have to do some projects. We have to generate knowledge about what might be optimal, what might be the implications uh, of a particular technological approach. But that once that research is carried out, then decisions can be made regarding the quality of the research and the conclusions, and that can be assessed through consultation. So in the Baha'i community, we have a, a process of organic development, systematic development, where a population essentially takes ownership of its own needs, defining its own goals, its own requirements, and the steps and the methods and the means that allow you to achieve those goals. And this, again, involves taking action. The first action may in fact be consultative, but then some sort of pathway is defined, doing some sort of pilot learning, some sort of assessment, some sort of evaluation. It's quite an amazing thing, actually, when you focus on what these impacts might be and you try to do it proactively before something's happening or if something is happening now with a technology it's ruled out, you're trying to get ahead of the curve and try to understand what are the questions that we need to ask? What are the possible implications? And we're seeing that right now with artificial intelligence that people are concerned, surprised at some of the capabilities that have been recently demonstrated. A spectrum of concern maybe from being very practical, what are the guardrails that prevent some fundamental things from happening that we wouldn't want to have happen in terms of allowing certain types of knowledge to be easily dispensed uh, and available to anybody versus the extreme of like worrying about a robot apocalypse, <laughs> which is maybe far-patched. And, but it's more that we actually have to understand what actually the new capabilities that are associated with the large language models of artificial intelligence, for example, do we understand that's called explainability, how these algorithms actually work? Are we sure that they're not biased, that the data, you know, we live in societies that are unequal and equitable, the data um, that is incorporated into these systems, should we use them in certain ways? like for criminal, criminal law enforcement or banking or whatever. So these are the types of dialogues that are occurring right now. And it's encouraging that at least the questions are now being posed and asked. Spaces are being created. You know, there are civil society organizations, there are academics, there are governments, the national and even state, national, international levels that are engaging in this paradigm of technology assessment, evaluation. So the overall vision of technology development cannot come from technology itself. Technology, again, is an expression of human capability. It magnifies uh, human intent. It amplifies our capacity, augments our capabilities, but it does not by itself have the, the necessary inherent characteristics or agency that we have. In other words, we can't attribute agency to technology. It is a socially constructed sort of phenomenon, and therefore it is all about our own will, our own values being expressed in technologies, systems, and tools. So in the end, 
it is a broader societal transformation that must occur before um, technological trajectories truly align with our purpose and our aspirations as human beings. You're listening to the Baha'i World News Service, reporting on major developments and endeavors of the global Baha'i community. For more information, visit news.baha'i.org.